Well, I'd like to invite you all into an exploration of vow. And in particular, I'd like to explore the inseparability of vow from meditation. And really to come to some clarity about vow as a practice. Vow is actually implicit in all of our practice, infuses all of our practice, but for the most part we only explore it actively in very special instances. Uh, For example, usually in January we do a special week-long retreat devoted to vows and investigation of vows. And we have the Shrine of Vows here on the monastery grounds, uh, which Dainan built with his own hands. Um, And occasionally, as a community, we make offerings at the shrine and present our vows formally. And then, of course, we have Uh, ordinations and precept ceremonies. But actually, vow is present always in our practice, moment by moment. And so I think it's it's a really rich exploration to, uh, to really look at this closely in our own meditation in our own experience. We can actually see zazen, see sitting meditation as a practice of vow. And what what would that mean? So let's explore this. In the early Buddhist teachings, the formal teachings, Vow isn't featured prominently. Uh, the, the traditional uh, bodies of teaching, the Eightfold Path, the Four Noble Truths, um, they don't explicitly mention vow. And these are regarded as the basic teachings of Buddhism. And yet, I think vow is presupposed in all of it. And perhaps vow isn't explicitly mentioned in the Eightfold Path because it actually is included in all eight branches of the path. So its presence is not often made explicit, but I think is understood. It's understood by us as practitioners, and I think also understood in the tradition. And really, vow is at the heart of all of it. Without vow, we don't have a practice. We don't have awakening. We don't have any of the other teachings. In a way, it was Siddhartha Gautama's vow that gave rise to this whole tradition, this whole body of teaching that we inherit. And where did that vow come from? That's not uh, 
just part of Buddhism. It's not just a figment of some tradition or institution. Where did it come from? It somehow arose spontaneously in this person and not just in him. I think there's a particular resonance uh, of vow with view. And view is regarded usually as one of the eight uh, branches of the Eightfold Noble Path taught by the Buddha. Uh, Often these eight branches are specified in terms of what's right. So right view, right thinking, right action, and so forth. But it occurred to me that perhaps a, a Mahayana take on that, the Mahayana being the, the great vehicle, the inclusive bodhisattva path, uh, might redefine those branches as great view, great thinking, great action, and so forth, great livelihood. Meaning, it's the form of action, the form of livelihood, and so forth, that accords with the totality, that accords with the largest view of reality, and that harmonizes with reality as a whole. That's a bit of an aside, but there is this resonance, I think, between vow and view. Sometimes I like to think of this monastery as great views and monastery, and it's really not so different. And when we see that resonance between vow and view, view here being not so much a philosophical view or some conceptual worldview, uh, but our actual experiential orientation moment by moment, uh, our, our state of mind, the openness uh, of awareness itself, and the extent to which we're aligned with that in our experience. And that alignment, I think, is essential to vow. So we can think of vow as the unlimited beyond of practice. We can get caught up in practice, thinking of it as something that I'm doing, something that I have to somehow accomplish, or I'm going to make something happen. Uh, I'm going to exert all of this effort and somehow accomplish the goal. Vow, in a way, provides a nexus between our own intentional activity and non-activity, or you might say the, the activity of pure spontaneity, the activity of faith, the activity of surrender. We, we bring our intention, we bring our purpose, and at the same time, we have to surrender into something that is beyond our own personal capacity, even. Beyond our own personal understanding, 
beyond our personal goals. And when we connect with vow, we're connecting with something that is larger than all of that, larger than ourselves. And yet there's also a dimension of purpose and directionality inherent in vow, almost as if it's, it's the purpose of the universe that we're aligning ourselves with. At least that's one level of it. We could say that vow is what's left when we think that we have nothing left, actually. And maybe even when we think we've given up or we think we've failed or when we just don't know what to do or we think we can't do it. Vow is still there. This is something we can experience with different degrees of intensity, different degrees of depth. It can be in the midst of a profound crisis or it can be, you know, just in a moment of confusion or a moment of, oh, I was just sleeping there for the last five minutes. Well, what was actually going on? And, and you know, I was sitting here on the meditation cushion and I seemed to be just drifting off and sleeping, but was there something deeper actually going on? even though my conscious mind may have been just drifting, there's something deeper at work. I think we have a sense of that. I think we trust in that. And on some fundamental level, we don't know what we're doing. We don't know how to do this. We don't know how to become enlightened. We don't, we don't see the whole picture. We can't. We, we can't see ourselves. We can't see where we're limited, where we're caught. And so practice, the path, necessarily is trusting in something beyond our own discernment or our own ability to know. So vow is a kind of surrender. That sounds a little dramatic, but again, there are degrees, and it doesn't have to be dramatic. In fact, I, as I suggested, I think we're doing it all the time in lots of little ways, and sometimes in, in big ways. Vow holds us as a refuge It's something to reflect on, refuge. In our conventional world, our conventional social world, our conventional worldview, do we really think of ourselves as needing a refuge? Is that something that's kind of openly talked about in the public square? Or is, it's, it's not. And, um, and that's why we have places like this that's why we have these traditions of wisdom and 
deep compassion to help us to recognize and to, and to acknowledge that, that we need a refuge. But again, with vow, it's not just a refuge in the sense of something that holds us kind of passively uh, as a container, but it actually is an agency in itself. Vow is uh, an animating force. It has a power. It has a purpose. It has a direction. It has vitality. It has dynamism. It has a life. And so when we kind of plug into it, so to speak, we're energized by it. We're animated by it. We don't just fall back into it. It infuses us with life, enables us to do more. Maybe it even shows us what to do, shows us how to do it. It's the spark through which the personal is opened up into the transpersonal. And maybe that's not just something that can happen. It might be that too. You know, some, some experience we can have or some process of transforming or transcending ourselves. But it might be actually just part of what we are that's always with us, that actually we're not just ourselves. We're never just who we think we are conventionally, but we're always kind of, we always have kind of a foot in both worlds of like the human world and, and the beyond. And Val connects us with that. It's not just beyond and it's not just some kind of human intentionality. It, it is a kind of intermediary between those two realms. And it keeps us, keeps us fused with both of those realms and aligned. So Maizumi Roshi, who was chosen and Hogan's teacher, root teacher, and one of the founders of this monastery, said that vow is what continues after death. Vow is what doesn't die. This was one of the rare public interviews that Maizumi Roshi gave. There's a video of him speaking about this. Uh, you might be able to find it somewhere. I don't think you can just find it by Googling it, but we, we have a copy of it here. Maizumi Roshi said that vow is what continues and that's a, a, a quality of vow, that it, it continues. It's, it's a force of continuation. This is something I've been uh, practicing with today, is just this sense of the continuousness of practice and vow as what enables practice to be ceaseless both in the sense of unremitting, you know, no gap, no, uh, 
no letting up, but also no, no end, that it just keeps going. It just keeps going, it just keeps going. And that's a quality that we can connect with in our practice, and it's a quality of vow. And Maizumi Roshi is saying that death can't stop it. If death can't stop it, maybe it's just unstoppable. If death can't stop it, what could stop it? Shoto Harada Roshi, another one of Chosen and Hogan's main teachers and another founder of this monastery, said that vow, the bodhisattva vow, is inherent to all beings. That means murderers, rapists, the worst people you could possibly imagine, and not just humans, I don't think. The bodhisattva vow is inherent to everyone. So it's something that transcends our categories of what's good and what's not so good. Um, it, it opens us up to a different way of seeing, different from our ordinary way of seeing and ordering the world. We could also think of vow as the Sambhogakaya energy. There, traditionally, there are three bodies of the Buddha. This is a kind of metaphysical framework in Buddhism, uh, a way of uh, kind of describing the different levels of reality, that there's kind of the ordinary embodied world, the Nirmanakaya, and then there's the visionary or um, uh, what can we call it, the liminal world, the visionary world, the, the world of dream, the world of imagination. Uh, maybe it's similar to what's called the imaginal in the Western psychological tradition. And the word for that is sambhogakaya. And then there's the dharmakaya, the reality body, which is formless reality itself, the fundamental nature of mind, the mind ground. And vow has a sambhogakaya quality. It has this quality of uh, being deathless, but at the same time manifesting, at the same time interacting with the ordinary human world and manifesting, intervening in the ordinary human world. So it has this kind of interdimensional quality. I think that also connects it to the soul energy so there's an interesting connection there. In Buddhism, there's not a lot of talk about soul, but uh, certainly in other traditions there is. Traditionally, there are different levels of vow that are explicitly identified. And these are different levels in our experience. 
The first level is the level of the pratimoksha vows. And these are the vows that monks and nuns take upon ordination. Uh, in, in the early Buddhist tradition and in the Theravadan tradition, there's a list of several hundred rules that monastics have to follow, and they make a vow to follow these rules. Uh, but pratimoksha is not just about following rules, and it's also not just about being a celibate monk or nun. It's really about an art of living. It's about uh, how vow manifests in our day-to-day -day choices, and how we organize our lives, what we do with our bodies, what we do with our speech. It's about our ethical action in the world and how we, how we yoke ourselves through what we do with our body and mind. Kind of steering this ship through life, making choices. And that's one level of vow. And we, we give our life shape and character by making choices and we cultivate certain qualities. Another level of vow is the level of the bodhisattva vow. And we chant the bodhisattva vow here every Sunday. We'll chant it at the end of this talk. And this, in one sense, is the great vow. This is the vow that orients us to infinity. It's the vow to see through all delusion to see beyond all views, to align ourselves with emptiness and with great compassion, the compassion of Avalokiteshvara, and also the vow of Prajnaparamita, mother of all Buddhas, wisdom beyond wisdom. And this vow enables us to be responsive, to manifest compassion in whatever way is needed, to be of service, to be of total service, to be in service of liberation, to be totally open without end. So we have the first level, which is you know, the level of our way of life, maybe our work, our work in the world, or our, our works, the works that we perform. And there's actually a, an etymological connection there between vow and vocation, and also vow and voting, for example, or voice, or evoking. Those are all connected linguistically. And so that's the first level of vow, what we do with our work. The second level, opening to the infinite. And the second level is not personal. And that's the level of bodhicitta, the heart of awakening. And that bodhicitta is generated mysteriously, generated by connecting with this total openness. And there are different qualities that the bodhisattva has. Traditionally, the, the paramitas describe the, a list of qualities, a list of practices 
that the Bodhisattva engages in. So there are particular aspects of that infinite vow, but the experience is a little different. It's not so much about kind of specific choices, but connecting to the infinite. The next level of vow in the Vajrayana, the tantric Buddhist traditions, is called the Samaya vow. And this is a vow that we could say is unbreakable, actually. It's an inviolable vow, inescapable. In the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, it's said that this vow is actually irreversible. If you make this vow, there's no going back. And the essence of this vow is the vow to see everything as a manifestation of Buddhahood. Sometimes this is called sacred vision or pure vision. To recognize everything as Buddha, every person, every being as Buddha. And the way this is practiced is in an alchemical way, actually transforming our perception, transforming negative emotions, negative experiences in general into compassion transforming our perception. There's a practice of deity yoga in the Vajrayana tradition where the practitioner visualizes themselves as the bodhisattva, as the deity. And the vow is never to lose this vision, to always be manifesting as the bodhisattva. The practices, the other practices associated with this level of vow are sometimes they're secret, esoteric practices. And this is partly to preserve their potency. That if, we, if we try to entertain this level of vow just with the conceptual mind, we can become confused. And maybe it can even be harmful. So... There are forms of initiation and uh, special rituals for entering into these practices at the appropriate time. And there are also rituals for sealing in the vow, for affirming it and affirming its sacredness. These practices often involve symbol. The communication is through symbol and through, um, through ritual. Uh, forms of communion that we enact with our bodies. And we, we have this element in our practice here as part of the rituals we do. It's um, not in a systematic way, but 
I think we're all familiar with this, even just from doing our chanting service. At this level of vow, sometimes the necessary course of action is to do what, to the conventional mind, seems like the wrong thing to do, actually. To do the thing that might seem like breaking the rule or might seem like uh, a violation. And this can lead to a lot of confusion and a lot of trouble, and it does sometimes, particularly in the tantric traditions, where unethical behavior is justified through precisely this kind of logic, and that's really not what it's about. It's not about anyone else's action. It's about our own practice. And it's about trusting what is beyond the ordinary conceptual mind. To do that kind of practice, we have to be honest We have to be true, true, true. The last level of vow is the level of faith mind. It's the level of the always already consummated vow. In the Tibetan Dzogchen tradition, this vow is symbolized by Samanta Bhadra and Samanta Bhadri. You may have seen this image of the blue Buddha sitting in lotus posture and the white Buddha, both of them in full embrace, representing the non-dual nature of reality. And the name Samantabhadra means the all-good one. So this is the all-good, this vow. And this is good beyond the distinction between good and bad. In Zen, there's a koan, every day is a good day. What, what does that mean? What would it mean for every day to be a good day or every moment to be a good moment? And this is the vow of undefilable completeness. Total experience, total dissolution, total surrender. And this is the level where it's most interesting to connect with 
our own experience of meditation and the presence of vow in our practice of meditation. At this level, there's no one meditating, there's nothing to meditate on, there's just the spontaneous presence, the spontaneous work of vow itself, working itself out, working on us, working through us. So let's connect with that now. Please open up to the practice of Zazen in the Japanese Zen tradition. There's a practice called Shikantaza, just sitting or simply sitting, open to the totality, the totality of vow manifesting now. Please open to that practice. The totality of vow manifesting now. What do you experience?